Okay, so we've been <clears throat> talking for the last few weeks about what kind of God it is that we serve, and what we found out is what we've always suspected, that Dallas Willard was right, that this God of ours, there is no limit to his good intentions towards us or to his power to carry him out. He's a mighty God we serve, amen? But one of the things we're also finding out that's mind-blowing to me is this powerful, creative, indescribable God of ours wants to do life with us. Is that amazing to you? I mean, He created us and this planet so that we could do life with Him every minute. It's a grand invitation. It's, it's amazing. But one of the other things we found out, just as being Christians and spending a lot of time in church over the years, is something came along as early as the third chapter in the book of Genesis that messed this whole thing up, and of course it was sin. It was sin. Now, I hate to spend another week talking about sin, because it's come up two or three times in the last couple months, but let's face it, us being the people that we are and living in the world that we're living in right now, this is just a natural subject, unfortunately, that we have to talk about, and that's the sin issue in our life. And it's everywhere. Sin shatters marriages. It, it shatters lives. It, it shatters dreams and hopes. Nobody in here has escaped the pain of sin of their own or somebody else's. It shatters relationships between parents and kids and between kids and other kids and, and friends and Christians. It's a nasty thing. But here's what really gets me is that I, we all know that about sin. Most have been in church all our lives, and yet we have never before in my lifetime trivialized the word sin like we have now. We have watered this thing down. In fact, you think about it, if you even hear the word sin outside of church today, where are you going to find it? On a menu at a restaurant, our hot fudge love of cake with extra ice cream is sinfully delicious. What a big fat lie that is. Hot fudge lava cake with extra ice cream is not a sin. It's a gift from God. And if it has extra hot fudge on it, it's proof that there is a God. You know what I'm talking about? But, I mean, seriously, we have watered this thing down. Think about it. We don't, we don't commit adultery anymore. We have an affair. We don't lie anymore. We have an indiscretion. We don't have addicts anymore. We have people who are having problems with substance and abuse. Now, I bring this up this morning because if we're going to walk with God, if that's why He created us, so spend time with Him, we'll have to do something about the sin issue, which is the greatest threat against human beings because it destroys our character, and that's who we are. I'll tell you what's at stake. Psalm 24, verse 3 who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? I mean, that's walking with him, right? Who can do that? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. God wants to walk with us, but in order to walk with him, it, it, it has to do with the capacity of our character. Clean hands, what I do. Clean heart, what I desire to do, what I want to do, what I'm longing after. Which raises the question, who of us in here have clean hands? Kind of a sobering question, isn't it? I read last week that on average they estimated how many germs are on a human hand. Turn to the person next to you and take a guess how many on average now there are germs on one human hand. 30 million. Anybody come close to that? 30 million germs. That means if you're sitting close next to somebody who has two hands, which if you're not sitting next to Richie, that okay, but there's 60 million germs sitting next to you right now. A germ walked into the bar. Bartender said, you're not allowed in here. We don't allow germs. He said, I work here. I'm staff. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> Somebody told me that the money we make 
has a lot of germs on it. I find that hard to believe. I can't imagine any germ being able to live on the money I make. Listen to me. <laughs> Philip Torino is a doctor of clinical microbiology, and he's written a book called The Secret Life of Germs. And in this book, he says 80% of disease today is passed on by human contact, mainly by the hand. And he said, despite that, people don't wash their hands today. He said, he gave one example. Uh, this is an estimate now. According to studies, only 50 percent of people wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. That's one in two. So that means if you washed your hands after you went to the bathroom this morning, the person sitting next to you, you probably didn't. You might want to move over just a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Torino says if we take this seriously, we, we need to wash our hands for 20 seconds at a time. That's singing happy birthday to you twice. Now, of course, today we are taking this seriously because of all the COVID mess, all kinds of regulations right now uh, about washing your hands. And you, you go to a restaurant or a bathroom, any place that's you know, got food service or public service, and you're going to say, you're going to see if you touched your hair, go wash your hands. If you touched your body, go. all employees must wash their hand before they got go back to work. So we have all these regulations about washing our hands. Don't you think it's odd that we have no regulations about washing our souls or our hearts? which is the most important part of each one of us. Again, I hate to talk about sin again, but man, it just keeps coming up. And it's such a serious issue. And this is going to be another kind of dark Sunday. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? But there's a lot at stake here. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can walk in His presence? What He wants us to do. Only people with clean hands and pure heart. So what we're going to do before we take communion this morning and have some serious prayer time, we're going to talk about some of the things we can partner up with God with to get clean hands and a pure heart. Okay, here's the first thing. We can invite God's presence into our life when we feel like we're being tempted, especially when we are being tempted. And that's when you need to talk to Him. Now, I know we've looked at Genesis chapter 3 twice in the last couple of months, but it's such a perfect description of how temptation works. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the trees in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. Uh, you must not touch it or you'll die. I, again, I know this is review, but what a brilliant picture of how this whole thing works. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Well, no, actually he didn't. He said you can eat from all the trees, all this luscious fruit I've given you, except for one, the one in the middle. But that's how he works on us. He gets us to misquote God. And my point is this, every time we fall into sin, we have to have this thought. Do I really want to walk with God all the time? Because see, there seems to be some times where he doesn't have my best interest in mind. Because he won't let me do this, he won't let me do that. So this is how this works. Now, I, I think it's also interesting here that God's not a part of this conversation. Because we know by now that uh, God has walked with them in the cool of Eve. You know, Adam and Eve, what an amazing thing that must have been. And how he talked, helped Adam name the animals and how he's given him instructions. And so where's he at now? Why isn't he involved in all of this conversation? Well, I think it's because God's giving them what he gives all of us, and that's time and space for freedom to choose. God is such a gracious gentleman. He gives us all freedom to choose. Am I going to walk with God in this moment, or am I not? And it's in those moments of choice where you and I develop our character. So you've got to understand at this point, Adam and Eve didn't have any character. They had innocence. Big difference. You know, we all love a new baby because they're born innocent. 
Now, how long does that last? I don't, it depends on the kid. 20 years, 20 days, 20 minutes. I don't know. But sin is the absence, our innocence is the absence of sin. But character is our life pattern. It's who we are. It's what we want. It's what we do. And so the question quickly is, is my character becoming more like Jesus Christ? Because when you think about it, that's what this life is all about, getting ready for the next one. And we've got to remind ourselves of this occasionally because the, the world is telling us that that's not the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life is achievement and success and advancement and resume and title and making sure that you, you pick the right political movement and you get on board with the right movement here and that you can argue your case on Facebook and those are the... No, no, no. The most important thing in our life the most important thing to God about our life is who you and I are becoming in Jesus Christ. And that's going to walk with us into eternity. Evidently, that's not on the mind of Adam and Eve at this critical moment. We know that because God is nowhere to be seen. They don't invite Him. God's there. He's always there waiting to be invited. But they don't invite Him there because they know what they're going to do. And when you and I know what we're about to do is not the right thing to do, the last person we want involved is God, right? That's why this is so important. The first step for us, when things are dicey, when you're being tempted to watch what you shouldn't watch, or go where you shouldn't go, or do what you shouldn't do, that's when you invite God in. Let's talk about this, God, because I, I really want to do this. This seems like something I'd really want to do, and I, I don't know. Maybe this is not what you want me to do. How important this is for us to do. Step two, we need to practice ruthless, honest confession. Once we fall, we need to own up to it. Yeah, I goofed. I did it. One guy said, I, I tend to blame everybody else for all of my mistakes. I never take responsibility. I think it's the way my mom and dad raised me. That's, that's what's going on with Adam and Eve here, man. They, they just can't. They're, they're, they're afraid. They're hiding. It's the funniest thing. It seems like that's what we do when we sin. But again, God is so gracious. Look, he knows everything that goes on, going on. And instead, in verse 9, he says, um, he says to the man, where are you? Adam said, well, I heard you coming. I was naked, so I hid. Now, God didn't have to ask Adam, where are you? He's God. He knew where he was. He asked him this question for his heart. He asked him this question to build his character. He asked them for his soul. He, he's saying, where are you, Adam? I created you to walk with me. You're not walking with me right now. Why is it? Where are you at? Hmm. Notice Adam doesn't say, I sinned, Lord. I'm, I goofed. I did exactly what you told me not to do. He moved in another direction. It's just funny what our heart does when we're sinning, isn't it? He just evaded the question. He said, what, what am I doing? Where am I? Well, uh, you know, I uh, heard you coming, and I was naked, so I was afraid, and I hid. So God pushes a little bit. He said, Adam, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I asked you not to eat from? <laughs> now, Adam's got a moment here, and this is a critical moment for him, and I'm sure he's thinking about maybe I should take some responsibility here, do a little character building, uh, maybe a little confession. And so he musters up all the manly courage he can find, and he said, that woman you gave me, she brought some of the fruit, and I ate it. In other words, God, everything was going along real good until what's-her-name showed up. And by the way, God, I was wondering whose idea was bringing that woman along here anyway. Was it, no, 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 it wasn't mine. It was your idea. And that's what we do with sin. We become a victim. Oh, I did it. I can't believe I did it. Well, it's not my fault I did it. He blames the woman, and subtly he's blaming God. The woman you gave me, she tricked me. So he asked Eve, did you eat from that tree? Well, yeah, everything was going good until what's-his-name. So that serpent showed up. And, that's us, man. It's him. It's her. It's my job. It's the church. It's the government. 
It's my neighbor. It's my sister. It's my wife. We always blame somebody else for our sin. This is nasty stuff. Sometimes we think sin's kind of the pricking of our conscience. Well, that's not true either. God and the Holy Spirit what pricks our conscience. We ought to thank Him for that because sin actually blinds us to our conscience and actually gets us to thinking things like, well, I hope so-and-so's heard this sermon today because it can't be us. You know what I mean? Here's a question for all of us this morning. Are we ready to admit that we're sinners, that we make mistakes, to be rebuked for it and get honest with God? That's, that's important because, let's be honest, all kinds of stuff inside of us to push us away from that. Well, Adam and Eve, they get kicked out of the garden. You know the story, and it's sad. They, they live the rest of their life with some joy, but also with a lot of pain. But I, before we move on, I want to look at one more thing that, again, shows what a great God we serve. Verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Wait, wait, what? They sinned and did exactly what he told them not to do, and yet he kills an animal and makes them clothes them. That's the God we serve. But we also want to notice that there had to be a sacrifice for that. And so for the first sin ever, there also came the first shedding of blood ever in the garden. And that was just a picture of what was to come. Plantinga says one of the ways Christians measure the seriousness of sin is by the suffering that's needed to atone for it. A little blood was shed. First time ever. Sin's nasty, man. Don't take it lightly. Now, you read on in the Bible, and we know it doesn't stop here. In fact, it ramps up, and it's still ramping up. The next story is Cain and Abel, of course, no relation, by the way. But anyway, uh, you know, the two-sacrifice deal, and God accepted Abel's, but he didn't Cain's. Remember that story? And we're not given a lot of details, but evidently, Abel gave of his first fruits, which means he made a, a genuine sacrifice to God. God noticed that and was pleased by that. Cain evidently just gave some of his stuff. He just went through the motions. It didn't cost him anything. And God noticed that. So God accepted because he was pleased with Abel's uh, sacrifice, but he wasn't pleased with Cain's, and he didn't. Now, at that moment, Cain should have, I mean, should have said, what's going on here, man? What, where's, what, where did I goof? What's my mistake? But he didn't. He got resentful and bitter, and he stewed about it. He let the sun go down on his anger like we talked about last week, and so we know what happens. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, here comes God again, using questions. He's so gracious. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And then he warns him straight up. Sin is crouching at your door, young man. It desires to have you. You must master it. Why are you angry, Cain? Cain knew exactly why he was mad. He was jealous of his brother. Cain wanted the reputation of a sacrificial, generous giver, but he didn't want to be sacrificial and be a generous giver. He just wanted the reputation. His brother got it. He didn't, and now he feels like a victim. It's strange how this whole sin deal works with us. We can stay away from the exact questions that can actually heal us. I read about this guy last week that runs a clinic in Southern California for people who have phobias, deep fear, and he said the problem is, as a longtime receptionist who has anger issues, like we talked about last week. But he said they're really ramping up of late. Now, to be honest, uh, in her defense, her husband left her quite suddenly, and one of her kids are sick. But he said, man, it's just getting terrible, and it's bad for business. He said, well, you've got people who have fear issues anyway, and they show up, and your, your receptionist is a rageaholic? People are too afraid to even come in. So he sat her down, and he said, hey, man, what's going on? I mean, what are you so mad about? Is there anything I can do to help? And instead of her saying, oh, man, 
Thanks for asking. I appreciate your concern. Let's walk through this thing. Let me tell you what's going on. Instead of doing that, she just got angry and just blew her top. You know, he's telling this story. And that's what sin does to us. Instead of reaching out to God when we've made a mistake or each other, we just get, oh, you know, which leads to number three. We've got to do quickly. We need to invite some accountability in our lives. We're going to have clean hands and a pure heart. You got anybody you can talk to about this, by the way? Honestly, think about this. Do you have anybody that you can sit across the table from right now that you feel comfortable enough to say, hey, when you hear me say something I shouldn't say or see me do something I shouldn't do that's not behaving in a way a Christian, would you tell me? Do you have anybody like that? Because you need somebody like that. that. That's what Christian community is all about. That's the beauty of small groups. That's why I'm glad Jeremy is moving in this direction. That, that's what it means to live this way, to hold each other accountable. And again, we do this in love, and we've got to be very careful. This is not about being able to name somebody's sin because, you know, they're suffering from it. This is about loving them so much you name the sin so they can grow in Christ and not suffer. You don't want to say, hey, I'd like to be in the sin-naming ministry. I mean, that's my spiritual gift. I, I love to name sins. No, you've got to be real careful about this. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, when a brother or sister is, is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you too may be tempted. Sadly, Cain didn't do that. And so uh, when he got the next opportunity out in the field alone with his brother, the guy he was raised with and laughed with and cried with and spent his life with, he killed him. And murder came on the scene for the first time because of sin. God didn't put it there. We got to be careful with this, which leads to the last thing. We need to ask God now more than ever to help us hate the sin in our life. That's an odd thing to say. We're not asking God to tell us to hate ourselves. I want to hate the sin in my life. Family, I want to tell you something. We need to take this very seriously. The Bible does. God says sin is crouching at you. There's a wild beast outside your door. I'm talking about a monster. This is not some menu uh, item on, on a restaurant someplace. This is a character-killing monster, and it desires to have you. You've got to master it. Now, unfortunately, today, because of 24-hour news feed, we see this monster openly all the time. Somebody walks into a movie house and shoots a bunch of people. We read over the weekend in Chicago, a uh, hundred shootings. That's the gun's fault, right? Indianapolis right now has over 130 homicides. They're averaging more than one homicide every 1.44 days. And we read these stories day after day, and we realize very quickly, very clearly, there is a darkness on this planet right now that we cannot explain humanly, not even close. And this darkness is not going to be cured by picking a side politically, by picking a trend, by being tolerant, by putting up, by doing this. This is not political, it's not physical, it's not financial, it is a spiritual problem, and God is saying to the human race, and He's saying to you and me, sin is crouching at your door right now, and it desires to have you, and I'd rather walk with you. And we can't do that if you're going to live in sin. And we can't be sitting around saying, well, I'm not Cain, I'm not going to kill anybody, because the truth is, family, you and I are part of this world. And what shatters the world is shattering us. Don't you have to fight your attitude constantly? I'm so mad at what's going on over here. I'm so mad at what's... Don't you post things you wish you'd never said? Aren't you at odds with Christians? 
over some of this stuff? I, I mean, I wish it wasn't so, but it's so. And I wish I, could I wish I could articulate this in a way that is so clear to understand. Sin is nasty business. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God says to Cain, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Think about that for a minute. This phrase, cry out, in the Old Testament, is a cry of desperation. It's like somebody's about to die, or somebody's being chased by a bear, or an entire group of people are being enslaved by the Egyptians, and they cry out, oh my God, help me. And isn't it funny today, instinctively, people that aren't even believers, who have no faith in anything at all, when something happens to them, what do they say? Oh my God. Why? Because there's no place else to go. That's where our hope is. And then God says this amazing thing. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Family, listen to me. What if that's not a metaphor? What if he means that? Can we stop just for a second of thinking of ourselves and put ourselves in God's shoes? What if every pain committed by every sin from Cain all the way to now is heard by God in heaven? What this planet might, must sound like to him. That's why we don't even get through six chapters in Genesis. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was full of pain. We don't even get to the seventh chapter, the first book in the Bible, tell God sorry he made us. Sin is nasty stuff, and it is on the increase. Anybody need any good news? <laughs> Me too. Hey, I got some good news. The good news is this. In the center of history, you're going to find a cross, and hanging on that cross is Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of our sin. We just talked about this last week. Uh, the cross is where God's anger for sin meets His love for the sinner, and there's an explosion of grace such as which we'll never be able to understand. Truth is, I've been preaching for over 40 years, and there's a whole lot about the cross I will never understand, but I do know this. The only person that ever lived a perfect life died a terrible death so that all of us imperfect people could live forever, and I'd think that's pretty good news. Amen. Pretty good news. The good news is John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. The good news is Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, for sure. But the gift of God, <laughs> it's eternal life through Jesus Christ, or through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But folks, it's beyond just eternal life. This God of ours wants to do life with you every day. And in order to do that, we have to have clean hands and a pure heart. I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't ask you to do normally on Sundays. I'm going to ask everybody in here to close their eyes and bow their heads. Would you do that for me? You people that are watching at home, put your cereal down, please, your toast, the dog. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute? And we are going to get honest at this table. Let your minds be emptied of distraction. Don't think about what you're going to do after church, what people might be thinking of you if you come up to the altar this morning. None of that stuff. Empty your minds and let God do some work on you, please. 
Get some clean hands and some pure hearts going on. Ask yourself right now, honestly, what question is God asking me right now? Is he asking, where are you? Is he asking, where have you been? Is he asking, what have you done? Is God asking you this morning, why are you angry? Why are you bitter? What's going on that's taking away your happiness? Why are you so deceitful? Can you give up all the resentment right now and all the resistance and stubbornness and just confess this to God? Maybe it's a sin so nasty you're too ashamed to even say it out loud. You don't have to. He knows it. Maybe it's an entanglement so thick you don't know where your sin starts and somebody else's begins. It's okay. He knows. Our amazing God is in the building right now. He specializes in heart surgery made possible through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Don't leave this building today without your hands being cleansed and your heart being pure. Don't waste this time.